Welcome to Innovation at the Edge, a podcast dedicated to bold ideas that will build a more sustainable and resilient world. We interview global thought leaders and discuss what's new in innovation and share insights for both entrepreneurs and corporations to build more agile and resilient businesses. Tomorrow's low-carbon and all-electric world will be created by both disruptive entrepreneurs and large corporations. And this podcast provides advice to both on how to scale their ideas. There is so much money flowing into clean tech. It's just, it's so mind-boggling for people who have been in this industry for many years. We've just been in such a situation of scarcity, people not believing in our industry. It kind of makes your head explode to just understand that now we got to think about bubbles again and feast or famine. That's kind of the way the investment world works. You know, it's kind of a herd mentality. So I think that there are some good signs about how this becomes more sustainable this time. Hi, everyone. I'm Emmanuel Agaric, uh, Chief Innovation Officer at Schneider Electric. And today I'm extremely pleased to uh, introduce Dr. Emily Reicher, the CEO and and founder of uh, Greentown Labs, North America's largest climate tech incubator, and I would say probably the largest in the world today. Uh, Greentown Labs has helped uh, more than 280 startups over the last nine years to come off the ground. Emily has served as uh, an MIT Sloan Fellow in Innovation and Global Leadership, so she knows what innovation is about, definitely, as well as a Venture Labs Fellow at uh, Flagship Ventures. Thank you, Emily, for being with us today. My absolute pleasure to be here and my pleasure to be partnered with you and Schneider Electric uh, for many years now. Yes, it's uh, actually we have a, a very productive and fruitful partnership with Greentown Labs. I mean, very, very happy of what we've been doing together, for instance, over the, the last two old idea challenges that we have been running uh, and, and which has helped identify brilliant startups in, in, in the energy transition and, and in particular lately in uh, in batteries and storage technologies. So really happy to partner with you. But for the broader audience and for people who don't know what Greentown Labs is about, can you share what you do? Absolutely. And again, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Greentown Labs, as you said, is the largest climate tech incubator in North America, possibly the world, although we can't prove that, so we don't claim it. (laughs) We were founded by entrepreneurs uh, really back almost 10 years ago now who were working on clean technologies and graduated from local universities. We're based here in Somerville, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston. So those universities were places like MIT. And these entrepreneurs needed a place to continue to build their prototypes. And so they came together and and took a chance on a a lease. And here we are 10 years later. We served actually at this point about 330 startups and we are growing rapidly. Today at Greentown Labs, we have about 130 early stage companies. And these companies are really working on challenges across the largest greenhouse gas emitting sectors. And they're focused on doing that through entrepreneurship, whether they're working in the electricity sector, buildings, transportation, agriculture, manufacturing, also resilience, I'd say, of people and infrastructure is another area that we are increasingly seeing as an opportunity for the startups that we support. Our mission is to provide these startups with the community resources, connections, 
their companies need in order to thrive. And it's important to know about our model that we do not take equity in the companies. Instead, we work with a series of amazing corporate partners like Schneider Electric, who can help the companies scale. And we also work with a variety of investors, hundreds of investors who may be a perfect match for one or more of our companies in the incubator. The startups that we've worked with have created over 5,600 jobs, and they have raised more than $1.2 billion in capital thus far, which we are very proud of. And geez, in the past several months, there has been a lot more capital raising, so I imagine that number's even higher. But the one we're really the most proud of is that we have an 88% success rate. So that means that companies that have gone through Greentown Labs continue to grow and to thrive after they leave us. As I mentioned, our headquarters is in Somerville, Massachusetts, and it spans a 100,000-square-foot campus. And there we have prototyping labs, a wet chemistry lab, office space, and community space. And the lab piece is really important and quite a differentiator because while a lot of the solutions that we're going to need to address climate change and the energy transition are digital in nature, quite a few of them require a hardware component as well. And so we really specialize in supporting companies that have that hardware component because hardware makes it a lot tougher. You need to do demonstrating the technology in a real-world environment, and you're dealing with science and engineering as uh, what you're up against versus just electrons. And so really the coupling of this, the hardware and the software is the magic that often happens at Greentown Labs as our companies grow in scale. And then finally, and I imagine we'll talk more about this, we are going to be opening our first out-of-state location in Houston, Texas, in really in a, just a few days on April 22nd. That is Earth Day, and that space will provide 40,000 square feet for about 50 early-stage companies, and we think that at the point that the incubator is full, there should be about 300 people working there. So this space will roughly emulate what we did when we moved into Somerville, Massachusetts back in 2013. It'll provide office space, prototyping lab space, community and programming for Houston area startups and corporate partners who are working together to accelerate the energy transition. And this is really a gap that we are currently filling in that ecosystem. Wow, that's even bigger than I thought. So 330 startups so far, and now you're doubling down with the, the new Houston location, but we'll come back to to Houston. And how many how many jobs were created? 6,500 jobs were created. Talk about big jobs, right? So so for anyone who is still doubting that clean tech and the energy transition cannot uh, create uh, jobs, so here you go. She's done it. <laughs> so... Well, and I just put on my LinkedIn, I think about a week ago, that we have 90 positions open amongst our startup companies. So cleantech is the place to be. It is the future. And there are so many opportunities that folks can take advantage of, whether you're finance, your marketing, your technical, your business, whatever your background is, if you're an intern all the way to if you're a C-level executive, we need everyone. We need all hands on deck. So lots of great opportunities. Cannot agree more. Let's start by you. How did you become the CEO of Greentown Labs? What did you do before and what, what are you doing what you do too? 
Well, as you mentioned, I actually came to Greentown Labs a bit through networking during an MBA program I was at at MIT called the MIT Sloan Fellows Program, which is really a mid-career, I'd say, in some senses, sabbatical at MIT, where you really just get to do a deep dive into innovation and entrepreneurship and explore. And the reason I did that program at all was that I wanted to join or start a clean tech startup. And so I thought that that would be a great place to find one or begin to build one. Before that, um, my background is actually as a scientist. I have a PhD in physical chemistry, so started my career very much at the bench in a laboratory, managing a few analytical chemists, and over time got to continue to grow my management skills through having a wide variety of projects and people put under me because I could deliver things on time and on budget, which is always a good thing whenever you are in a company. So... I did that for a number of years, focused originally on chemistry and then towards green chemistry, which is making processes and products more environmentally friendly. And that got me to clean tech and networking my way around during the MBA program at MIT Sloan. I happened on a basement full of entrepreneurs and I thought, well, one of these companies I will join or maybe I'll start one myself. And instead, I I realized that I could potentially have an impact on many of them. Because that little group of entrepreneurs who were calling themselves Greentown Labs had a challenge, and that was that this basement space that they had identified was basically going away, and they needed a new home and really someone to kind of marshal the resources to raise capital to make that happen. And so that was the beginning of my Greentown Labs journey first year and a half, didn't really get a paycheck. It was very much an entrepreneurial venture. But luckily, I was at a time in life and career where that was possible for me. And I have been working on building the organization ever since. And it's just such a pleasure to work with entrepreneurs and to have that enthusiasm and optimism around every single day. There's just nothing like it. Yeah. So you came to... uh to help with the idea to help a one one fintech startup to grow and you just did the 330 of them. So <laughs> not, not bad, not, not too shabby. I always was an overachiever. <laughs> <laughs> so, but precisely now you have, you have a very broad view on what it takes to scale up an early stage business because when they come to Britain Labs, it's very, very early in their, in their development. What is your, your biggest learning Scaling up early stage uh, startups. Well, as I said at the outset, I think the important thing to know about the the types of startups we support, which really do tend to have some kind of hard tech or hardware component in addition to the, the software and digital component, is that it is a long, hard road for them. They may start with a prototype that gets built in a laboratory, often a university laboratory, and then they need to build enough of those that they can test and develop a set of data that then convinces someone that this technology does something for a market that really exists. And that process, because you're talking about science and engineering, it takes time and it takes money and it takes expertise that the team has to build or that they have to pull in from the outside. And so it's a tough journey. And it is also very true that the types of companies that we work with in the energy sector and decarbonization really broadly defined 
these companies are mostly going to be selling to another large company, ultimately. So they are somewhere in the value chain that is usually not right to consumer. And so for that reason, they are almost always going to need a partner to get them to scale, whether that be a manufacturing partner, some kind of joint development agreement, a licensing agreement, that technology is usually going to have to be brought to scale with the expertise of a partner. And so I'd say that one thing that we've learned and seen over and over over the years is that there are large companies out there, and I'd say Schneider Electric would be one of them, that really understand how to work with young companies and have, I'd say, passed that barrier of understanding that not everything needs to be invented internally and can be a very good and strong partner for these startups. But that's really the special sauce all around. I mean, we're in a very interesting market right now with so much money coming into climate tech. But generally speaking, in normal times, these companies are not usually going direct to IPO or through a SPAC. They are normally going to be growing through an acquisition or through a partnership. And those relationships then become really, really important to get the technology to a scale where it can make an impact. And so I think that the corporate partners that we work with just play such a critical role. When you're talking about a gigaton-sized problem, you really need to work with partners that understand that level of scale. And that is what we find in, in the large corporations that we work with. So I think that that is very much something that we've learned over the years and we've seen over and over that startups need to build successful partnerships in order to get their technology to scale where it can make an impact. Yeah, Dan, and I can I cannot agree more. And then from, from the standpoint of a large corporation, working with, with you and, and, and the platform you have, you have created is the best way to execute on our innovation at the edge program. So as you said, breakthrough innovations will rarely come from within a large corporation. So you need to reach out, you need to work with those entrepreneurs and set up a place where you can manage expectations on both hands and we can grow together into those, uh, those new ideas. What is the most important thing a startup needs from an accelerator from Greentown Labs? What did you really bring to that? So there are quite a few things that an incubator and accelerator, of which we have both of those at Greentown Labs, bring to startups. The first and foremost, I'd say a very important thing to get back to the challenge of building a young company in this space is that you really need peers and you really need a supportive community around you just to get through it. And so I'd say first and foremost, one thing that Greentown provides is a like-minded peer group going through a similar process of building a company that you can both learn from as well as contribute to building while you are at Greentown Labs as an entrepreneur. The second thing is really a wide variety of resources that we have now curated over a 10-year period, whether they be things like a machine shop, an electronic shop, a wet chemistry lab, software, and other tools and equipment that we know these companies need. That's on the one side, but also just the expertise around actually using all those things we can curate in this community and allow the startups to not spend the money to build up those resources or that expertise. The third thing is 
connections. So as I've mentioned, we work with a lot of investors and a lot of corporate partners. What we really focus on at Greentown Labs is building relationships that are going to last for the long haul. And that involves, especially working with large corporations, you really have to get to know that company and who in the organization is actually the right person, the right business unit head, the right pathway to be able to build that relationship for scale. And finally, I think the thing that an incubator does well is bring together an entire ecosystem. So there's the corporate partners, the investors, but there's also the universities who have talent through their students, but also the new ideas, lots of equipment and resources there as well. You also want to bring together policymakers and folks that can be working with these young companies on the regulation side. What needs to change? How do we need to evolve? And finally, there's just a whole group of professionals that are providing services to young companies that are excited about this climate tech space and often able to do things for very young companies for a reduced rate. And so we tend to find those people that are very passionate, very interested in supporting climate tech startups. And we bring them all together. And the startups can just walk from their laboratory space right into event space And they have their entire network of service providers, of government officials, of investors, of corporate partners, of university connections for talent, all right there, easy to access. It doesn't have to take a lot of time or money for those resources and that ecosystem to be brought around that startup. So they have everything they need really from the incubator. Yes, and for those of you who follow the podcast, I recommend to look back at the the episode we did. We we recorded with Sean, founder of uh, Titan AES, a Greenton Lab startup. And it's a very good example of of, of everything you you, you said, Emily. The support you've provided to Sean and and to Sean and Sean, the two founders, and how, because they were at Greenton Labs, because they had that space, we could experiment and and adjust our relationship. And to, to be honest, the first day we met them, we thought we were going to connect them with one of our business units. And at the end, they are working with another one. And you see that iterative process and that space and that process can only happen in, in, in an environment like, uh, like Winter Labs. So after the great success of Greentown Labs in, in the Boston area, and I think after building the largest cleantech incubator in the world, at least in North America, but I'm, I'm pretty sure also in the world. So now... You're doubling down and you're opening a, a second location. And of all places, you have selected Houston, one of the capitals of oil and gas. So why, why that choice of Houston? That's a really good question. And I get it a lot. And so I think we at Greentown have done quite a bit of thinking about how we explain the importance of going to Houston to a broad audience. I mean, of course, that that just raises a question, right? It's thought of an oil and gas capital. Why in the heck would they want a climate tech incubator? But the fact of the matter is that this is currently, at least in Houston parlance, the energy capital of the world. So many headquarters of so many large companies in energy are in Houston. And there are assets, there is talent, there are so many resources that are focused on the energy industry in Houston. And yet, thus far, Houston has not been, well, it hasn't been as publicly leading on what's next for energy. 
the energy transition. And Houston really needs to be not the energy capital of the world, but the energy transition capital of the world if we are going to address climate change on the timescale we need to. Now, why do I bring that into it? Honestly, Greentown Labs has a dual mission. We have a mission, first and foremost, to support our entrepreneurs that are building climate tech companies. But we also think about our bigger mission, and that is around climate action, climate action at scale. And when we think about where we could have the most climate impact, and you look really broadly in terms of what's going on globally, why are we acting or not acting on climate? You understand that the U.S. is a big player in what happens next over the next 10 years. And the U.S. is a very diverse place in many, many ways. But often the coastal U.S. has one opinion of where the country should go, and the middle of the country may have a different opinion. And so what we think we can do by creating a climate tech incubator in Houston, Texas, is provide a very visual and tangible example of what the future of energy looks like. We can provide that hope. We can provide that opportunity. We can provide the example of climate tech-related jobs and have that conversation. Because the fact of the matter is there's a lot of people in Houston that feel very strongly that we need to address climate change. Hurricane Harvey in 2017 dropped 50 inches of rain on Houston, Texas in 48 hours. You don't experience something like that and not understand that it is something that has not happened very often in the past, 500-year storms and happening more and more. So when you think about what has powered this fourth largest city in the United States over the past 50 to even 100 years, you think about the oil and gas industry doing that. So many jobs, so much, both direct jobs and indirect jobs. If we are decarbonizing the entire planet, which I think we are on the track to do, what happens to a city like Houston? Luckily, the leadership of the city and specifically the business leadership of the city sees that issue. They understand that in 10 to 20 years from now, Oil and gas cannot drive Houston's economy. And so they are actively investing in other areas that can take over for that major employer in the area. And so I think it's it's actually a really smart strategy. And it just isn't that they're focused on climate tech or energy 2.0. They're also focused on building an IT sector further than they already have uh, Microsoft and Amazon and HPE have all announced opening big offices there. They are also investing in biotech and biomedical and climate tech and clean tech. And that's really where we come into the picture, which is kind of a visible symbol again, a, a way to show that this transition is real and it's accelerating and Houston is thinking about it and acting on it in a way that I think is actually very smart and very strategic. I agree. This is a very smart move to your point, right? So, so everybody down, down there wants starting to see Houston as not only the energy capital, but the energy transition capital. And you see a lot of oil and gas companies turning and starting, starting to be active on, on, uh, on this. Regarding on what you said about the coasts, so when you, when you go to the Silicon Valley and you start talking about clean tech, what we would call clean tech 1.0, the wave of clean tech of probably 10 years ago, 
you actually find a lot of skeptics. A lot of people who tell you, no, I'll never invest again in clean tech uh, because I was burned on this or that, that topic. And, and they have a very definitive answers. So this is changing a little bit because they start understanding that AI and software is going to be to play a very big role in energy, the energy transition. So, and that's, that's something they do reasonably well in the Silicon Valley. But still, you still find a lot of skeptics in that part of the country. So talking about CleanTech 1.0 and, and now CleanTech 2.0, so arguably we are going through the second wave. And this one is really big and it's really a, a change for good and a, a big impact on the world. Among all the technologies and business models you, you, you see, is there anything that is, you think is especially relevant? And, and before, before you answer, I just want to, to, to remind everyone, this is not a, a place where we give investment advice. So it's about innovation. It's about creating new businesses and, and, and technologies. So Emily, what type of technologies would you bet on? Would you, you see are going to, to, to really bring a, a change on acceleration to the energy transition? Well, I think there are quite a few, and I, I guess I would just agree with you on the transition from energy 1.0 thinking to energy 2.0 thinking, and, and fully agree that we are in that wave. It is a big wave, and I am just hopeful that this time, the investors that are involved and in getting involved and in jumping in with two feet are going to have a sustainable presence in our industry. I agree that for 1.0, a lot of folks jumped in that probably were generalists and maybe didn't, you know, maybe didn't have all the, the right ideas when it came to how hard energy is to invest in, maybe didn't really understand the regulation and therefore got burned. And for many years, clean tech was dead, but hey, we're back. And it is a very exciting time to be in the field. I have seen so many of our companies get a new investment in just the past, I'd say, six months. You almost can't keep track. It is so amazing. So this is a wonderful time to be working in this industry. You know, when I think about what the key technologies are that we're going to need, and I think that I'd go back to a strategy that I know you all are taking at Schneider Electric, which is the electrification of, well, everything and the digitization of everything. You know, there are so many strategies and so many opportunities for that trend to happen. You know, whether you're talking about electric vehicles, zero emission vehicles, this is a huge contributor to greenhouse gases around the world, but certainly in the U.S., it's about a third or more of the total. And so, you know, that can have a major impact. And of course, we have work to do to make sure the electricity sector is caught up with having renewable energy or other energy that is clean as the, the source of that electricity. So that is something that is happening through increasing offshore wind. And we are in Massachusetts really on the cutting edge of that with the first utility scale offshore wind project going into our waters. It turns out that though offshore wind has already happened in Europe for years, there's a lot of new technology that is needed to make this happen at scale in New England and off the mid-Atlantic waters. And so we actually have run programs around identifying technology specifically for monitoring marine mammals, for understanding what is it that you need to do in terms of other kinds of wildlife. What are the sea conditions that you want to monitor through autonomous 
systems. And so there are actually quite a few technologies that the offshore wind industry needs that will help us get to that electricity sector being one that can provide us with clean energy. Energy storage is another area that we've worked together on, Manuel, through the Bold Ideas Challenge. Certainly, that is going to be continue to be a, a challenge across so many different applications and sectors for the foreseeable future. You think about the intermittency of renewable energy, or you're talking about electric vehicles. All of those are energy storage-related challenges. So really glad to see Titan and glad to hear that Titan, um, Sean and Sean were earlier on your podcast because I think they've got a really interesting technology that kind of attacks the problem in a different direction. But we're absolutely going to need to double down further on energy storage. The others that I'd highlight, um, there's a lot of talk right now about hydrogen. I don't know that anyone's really figured that out beyond... We know we need this for energy storage and there are other applications. I don't think that we have the economics figured out yet, but if we are going to a decarbonized future, it seems likely that that is going to be part of the portfolio. And you know, certainly when you look at this in terms of the Houston context, it is the place where there is more hydrogen produced and handled anywhere else in the world. And so that's another one that where I think that we have the opportunity to do testing and piloting and really work on getting that cost driven out. So those are kind of big blue sky areas or greenfield areas that we see many startups starting to wade into and also many of our corporate partners, but a lot of work to do there to figure out either one of those. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, and, and I would bet that at your new Houston location, you will see entrepreneurs who will bring clarity to that dilemma on, on hydrogen is it useful, not useful? What are the real applications where, where hydrogen can make an impact? And carbon capture, for sure. So as you said before, there's a lot of money now flowing to, to, to clean tech and, and SPACs. And yesterday, or last week, Temasek and BlackRock announced a gigantic late-stage fund. And, and we hear this type of announcements almost, almost every week now. Is it a bubble or is it finally clean tech coming, becoming mainstream? What, what, what is your, your reading on this? Well, just even hearing you say the words, there is so much money flowing into clean tech is just, it's so mind boggling for people who have been in this industry for many years. We've just been in such a situation of scarcity, people not believing in our industry. It kind of makes your head explode to just understand that now we got to think about bubbles again and feast or famine. That's kind of the way the investment world works. You know, it's kind of a herd mentality. So I think that there are some good signs about how this becomes more sustainable this time. And one thing is the entrepreneurs and the investors who are going into this did get burned in the first round, many of them, not so much the entrepreneurs, but certainly the investors. But I do think the entrepreneurs are also a bit scrappier and a bit smarter than the original round of entrepreneurs that you know may have been planning $100 million factories in Silicon Valley. Like literally, that was happening. That's how crazy the money was at that point. So we shouldn't do that again. We should be smarter about what it really takes to grow a startup and get that technology into the world through partnership or through other means that we can be more capital efficient. I think our industry has really learned the lesson of being capital efficient. And so I would expect that we're smarter this time and there are 
probably less implosions because we've got a, a industry that has been through a first bubble. Although there are many new folks getting into the industry and they won't necessarily have lived, learned that lesson and, and lived that time. But I think that there's definitely some you know, intelligence about how to do things more capital efficiently and the importance of partnerships that we can build on going forward. So is it a bubble? Hmm, yeah, there's a lot of money flowing into the industry, but is it sustainable? Probably maybe not at this level, but I think that the big signs are not only are the entrepreneurs and the investors smarter, but we as a globe, meaning not only the US, but Europe, certainly way ahead of the curve, China, Korea, Japan, all of these countries now have these net zero 2050 goals and they need to get there somehow. And so that is a global phenomenon. So I think that that continues to fan the growth of this industry. Perhaps we're in a very fast flowing period right at this moment, but I don't think the need goes away, even if there's you know a little setback at some point, because this is the way the world is going. I do not see us turning around to suddenly decide that, oh, we didn't really mean it. We don't want to decarbonize anything or we don't want to fight climate change. We're there. Like, I mean, there, the youth movement, there have been so many factors. Just even the pandemic as well, I think, has made people realize how unprepared we are for global challenges and global crises. So I am very uh, bullish on the idea that the world is marching forward and we will need climate tech to get there. And so that will sustain us over the longer haul. I cannot agree more. This energy transition and the disruption that, that will come with it are very similar. There are a lot of similarities with the digital revolution that we, we went through a bit more than 20 years ago. So yes, in 1998, 1999, there was a bubble. And yes, there were businesses, there was a lot of money put in businesses which had not a lot of value. But that's also the time at which companies like Salesforce, Amazon, Google were created. So mm -hmm. probably right now, and maybe within the walls of Greentown Labs, the Google of, of energy is, is uh, being created. So yeah, even though if there's a sign of a bubble, there is probably a lot of value. And to your point, there's no return. Now the planet is going on that, on that direction. You were talking about the pandemic and how poorly we were prepared as a society uh, at large for, for this type of crisis. And, be careful, the one that comes with climate change is way bigger. But we also observed over the last year a phenomenon, which is a lot of businesses have stalled and others have accelerated. So in the clean tech world, was the pandemic an accelerator or not? Well, it's been a tough year and it's still a tough year for so many people who have lost friends, colleagues, loved ones during the pandemic. So let me say that first and just acknowledge that. When you think about more broadly, what did this last year bring in terms of the climate tech industry and specifically around the types of startups that Greentown Labs supports, what I've really seen is that it definitely evolved over the course of that year. You know, I'd say in the first couple months, no one knew which end was up. There was, I'd say, panic. Lots of, am I going to have to lay everyone off? Where's the money going to come from? I think that there was a realization, again, maybe at a fundamental level because we understood how unprepared we were for this pandemic and therefore that we needed to double down on this much bigger crisis of climate. I don't know if that was the driver, but 
what we saw, interestingly, at the corporate level, so the large company level, was a lot of doubling down you know, on announcements related to climate. We saw at Greentown Labs, we saw our partners say, we are with you and we are going to continue to support you. There was almost no, or if any, backing up or saying, oh, this is probably not the year. No, doubling down is what we saw. And then with the startups, once they got through that initial period of chaos, they went back to the lab and they continued working. And since then, I would say we've only seen an acceleration in their growth and development and the number of employees and the number of patents and the number of pilots run and the amount of investment. And it just keeps accelerating. And so it's really interesting. I would say our startup companies in general had a, other than a global pandemic, had a darn good year in 2020. And we really saw that across the board. We lost one company out of about 100 companies. So I think that tells you right there that this pandemic, for all the horrible things that it brought, also... I think was clarifying about what's important and where we need to go and the importance of resilience. And maybe for those reasons, we saw a doubling down by investors, by large corporate partners, and you know, by the startups themselves continuing to fight forward and then having the opportunity to grow in ways that they certainly did not anticipate at the beginning of the pandemic. So before we, before we leave, any advice, any recommendation or any Last thought on, especially on this big day of opening uh, of your new venture in, in Houston. Well, I would just say that it's incredible to have partners like Schneider Electric, who we've worked with for a number of years. It's just this whole concept of partnership and relationship building, I think, is is something that maybe is overlooked in our society as something that's so fundamental to building infrastructure and how we really find the answers and implement the answers to big problems. And so partners that we've had for years who have helped us grow, we're just incredibly grateful. And we're also very thankful that we have the opportunity to work with so many wonderfully engaging and inspiring entrepreneurs as well, who are literally tackling this giant global challenge. And I think you find that in climate tech and people that are drawn to climate tech like no other industry. So I'm just proud to work in the way that we do. And, you know, I invite everyone to join us. Yeah, you can be proud. I mean, look at the success, 330 startups and many green jobs already created. And that's just the beginning because now, as, as you said, on Earth Day, you're you're opening in Houston and doubling down on what you've already done in Massachusetts. So congratulations. And, and of course, Schneider Electric will be with you in that new uh, endeavor. You can you can count on us and on our partnership and, and on continuing to develop many new ventures together with uh, with the startups you incubate at uh, Greentown Labs. Emily, thank you very much for your time today. It was a great pleasure and all the best for the grand opening in Houston. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to speak with you. Thanks for listening to Innovation at the Edge by Schneider Electric. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. If you like this episode, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. For more information on the Innovation at the Edge program at Schneider Electric, go to se.com ventures or follow us on LinkedIn.
The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be undertaken as financial, economic, legal, business, tax, or investment advice. The information, statements, views, and opinions should not be construed as the provision of advice by Schneider Electric or as an offer to buy or sell any products or services or to make or consider an investment or course of action.